This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 7th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we review 100 years of X-ray crystallography, hear about how climate change may push malaria uphill, and David Grimm is here with the latest stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. The insights gained from crystallography, which allows us to determine the atomic arrangements of crystallized substances, have revolutionized chemistry and biology. For this week's special issue on 100 Years of Crystallography, Thomas Sumner put together a timeline of the greatest hits in the field. I spoke to him about some of the highlights. So 100 years ago, Max von Laue, a German physicist, performed the first X-ray crystallography. And so he shot X-rays at a salt crystal, and he got a diffraction pattern. And that's because light acts like a wave. And so when X-rays pass through a crystal, they bounce off the atoms and then they interfere with each other and you get a diffraction pattern. The only problem is, is he didn't know how the diffraction pattern related to the positions of the atom in the crystal. And that's where the father and son team, the Braggs, come in. And they developed Bragg's Law, which is this mathematical formula that gives you the link between the diffraction pattern and the atomic structure of the crystal. And that was a major breakthrough because it allowed you to basically determine the fundamental structure of anything you wanted to. And it started off with these simple crystals like salt, but in recent years has become everything from proteins to viruses to even the Martian soil. Okay, well, so you actually put a timeline together highlighting the greatest hits for 100 years of crystallography. But it goes back even further than 100 years. It goes back to 1611. What happened then? Well, X-ray crystallography has two parts. It has the X-rays and it has the crystals. And so in 1611, Johannes Kepler, who is a uh, German physicist and kind of a heavyweight of the time, he was poor, but he wanted to give his friend a New Year's present. So he put together this little book that was all about snowflakes and how snowflakes have six sides. And he hypothesized that they have the six sides because at their core, the repeating crystal structure was hexagons. And he said that that was the best way of stacking spheres 
was putting them in this kind of repeating hexagonal structure. And he had no way of proving this because they only had microscopes at the time. The microscopes won't help you with crystals. And so it wasn't for another couple hundred years when X-rays were invented. And X-rays let you look at that fine atomic structure. And that's when Max von Laue and the Braggs came in and put the two together and X-ray crystallography was born. One of the things you know in your timeline is that a lot of Nobel Prize work has come out of crystallography. Can you highlight a few of those breakthroughs? Well, highlighting is kind of a good way to put it because there's uh, about 30 total Nobel Prizes related to X-ray crystallography. And it runs everywhere from physics to physiology and everything in between. And you get some interesting ones like the Braggs were the first Nobel Prize winners to be a father and son team. And you have Rosalind Franklin who helped come up with the helical structure of DNA. And she actually wasn't awarded a Nobel Prize because she sadly passed away before it was awarded. But you have a lot of really interesting discoveries. Going back to the Braggs for a moment, they were the first people to structure diamond. And a few years later, John Desmond Burnell structured graphite. And this was really interesting because both diamond and graphite are pure carbon atoms. Your pencil lead and the diamond ring on your finger are both just carbon. And so one is really priceless and the other one breaks off and you dust it away. And the difference between them is the structure of the carbon. And the Braggs found that diamond, the carbon, are in these three-dimensional hexagonal grids that are incredibly tough and strong and make it clear, whereas graphite are still hexagons, but they're not 3D. They're in these 2D sheets. And that makes them incredibly brittle and gray. A lot of the early work focuses on the physics behind detecting these structures. But later, we see a shift in the focus to the description of biological molecules. What are some of the important biological contributions of crystallography? Well, at first, extra crystallography was kind of difficult to do. And so it was a lot of really simple crystals like salt or like diamond. And then as things progressed, it went from trying to fine-tune how to perform extra crystallography to actually doing useful research. And so you get the early work of structuring penicillin and vitamin B12, and those were major breakthroughs because the structure of these biological materials defines, as any chemist will tell you, how they interact with other things. As time progressed, it went from kind of just basic biological things like basic proteins to as many proteins as we possibly can. In 1995, there were about 3,300 different structures that were solved. And in 2014, this year, there were over 86,000. And a lot of those come from proteins. And that's really important for developing drugs and understanding diseases and improving healthcare. Mm -hmm. So another landmark is in 2012, we see crystallography in space for the first time. Yeah, in 2012, the Mars Curiosity rover, everybody's favorite little robot that could, performed the first X-ray crystallography on Mars. And it took a little bit of Martian soil and analyzed it for its components. And so by the end of the decade, the European Space Agency is hoping to launch a new rover that's going to be able to drill underneath the Martian surface and perform X-ray crystallography on the samples they dig up. Very cool. So despite 100 years of work, there doesn't seem to be any slowing in this field. What are some of the recent advances that are pushing the area forward? So many of the recent advances have been the biological sciences. So in 2013, scientists found the protein that HIV uses to snatch on to immune cells. And that was a major breakthrough for potential HIV cures. Before that, in 1982, scientists discovered quasi-crystals, which are 
very strange crystals that instead of having an ordered repeating pattern, they have an ordered non-repeating pattern. And that was very confusing and has been a lot of recent research on that. Great. Okay. Well, Thomas, thanks so much for talking with me. Sure thing. Thomas Sumner is an intern for Science News. He delves into the history of crystal description as part of a special issue this week. To see his timeline and more articles on celebrating 100 years of crystallography, visit www.sciencemag.org slash special slash crystallography. Describing the relationship between climate change and malaria has been tricky both methodologically and politically. If a strong link is forged, there'll be implications for both climate policy and public health. But malaria is a moving target due to chronic shifts in policies and populations. I spoke with Mercedes Pasqual about her group's approach to studying the climate-malaria connection by using altitude. The main result in this paper is that malaria in highland regions of Ethiopia and Colombia moves up in altitude with warmer temperatures, as temperatures warm from one year to the next. So this means that climate change will, without mitigation, result in an increase of the malaria burden in these densely populated highlands of Africa and South America. So what effects do warmer temperatures have on the malaria parasites? So this is really interesting. Warmer temperatures shorten the time it takes the malaria parasite to develop within the mosquito vector. So after a mosquito bites an infected person, the parasite needs to spend a given amount of time within the mosquito before it can be transmitted to another human host. Mm -hmm. The result of this is that at high altitudes, the parasite is effectively in a race against time because it has to achieve development before the mosquito dies. And it takes it longer to develop because of the colder temperatures. So this is one main effect that limits malaria transmission at high altitudes. Another is that the densities of the mosquito itself go down dramatically with rising altitudes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So your goal was to connect temperature, altitude, and malaria burden. But it seems like there would be a lot of confounding factors when you're looking at these different variables because there are so many other things going on, like changes in health policy, the movement of populations. How are you able to isolate this effect of temperature change? So this is a really interesting question that is perhaps behind all the debate of really these long-term trends that are Mm -hmm. associated with climate change affecting malaria or not. So the problem with addressing climate change directly is that one needs to consider the influence of a long-term temporal trend. And adjudicating trends in time is very difficult because many other factors can also be changing in similar ways. So, for example, long-term trends in temperature have co-occurred in this region with increases in drug resistance in the malaria parasite. So what we did in our work to get around this is to not focus on long-term temporal change per se, We had data in both space and time at fairly high resolution in space. Mm -hmm. So we could consider the spatial distribution of the disease and how it varies along an altitudinal gradient. So what we focus on was essentially on this distribution independently of the total cases and how it varies with temperature from one year to the next. So you looked at how 
malaria cases moved up and down hill over time and then related that to temperature. Yes, and with variations in temperature, not as a long-term trend, but from one season to another. So we could use this sort of shorter-term variation to see the response of the distribution along the elevation gradient. So this high-resolution space-time data was for 10 or 15 years, and then we used longer data set that was just temporal, and where we, we could see this uh, trend, this temporal trend in the increase in total cases and also the increase in temperature. And we basically then uh, related the two. So we could say that what we had done in the more recent times with this variation from one year to the next was relevant to this longer-term trend. Mm-hmm. In your analysis of the records for these two different sites, what were you able to conclude about the relationship between temperature, altitude, and malaria burden? We concluded from the analysis that as temperature varies from one year to the next, we see this expansion or contraction of the distribution of cases with elevation. And in particular, we showed a clear expansion with warmer temperature. So this pattern means that at high altitudes, more people would be exposed to malaria than they would have been under normal temperature conditions if we have a warmer season. And what was the advantage of using two different sites in such different parts of the world? Considering two different locations in two different continents makes the results more robust because we know there are differences in rainfall patterns, in mosquito vectors, in uh, distributions of the population, but Nevertheless, we get similar results. What about changes in insecticide practice during the time covered by the study? Did that have any impact on your data? Yes, so we were able to directly address this question by repeating our results for the study in Ethiopia after removing the locations where insecticide spraying had been used. And we did not see any significant change in our results. In other words, there was not a bias created by how insecticide use varied with elevation. Mm-hmm. I should also point out that we finished the study, the data went up to 2005, because after that, in these sites, there was much more intervention, including insecticide use. So we basically were looking at the period before these higher control efforts were implemented. During that time period, though, you you used retrospective data and you were able to show that climate change since the 1980s has already influenced the spread of malaria in Ethiopia. Based on these numbers that you saw, what kind of rise in cases could be expected in the future? Yes, so to answer your question, I have to point out that our analysis were concentrated in a particular sector, in a particular sector of Ethiopia, in a particular region of Colombia, Mm -hmm. for which we had this high-resolution data, that is data that was both in space and time. So this was a smaller region than the whole highland region of these countries. However, for those comparable altitudes, the altitudes that are represented in this data, which is between 1,600 and 2,400 meters, We have 37 million people that live in these uh, rural areas at risk of malaria, and this corresponds to 43% of Ethiopia's total population. So there is a large number of the population at these high altitudes. We had previously estimated for the whole country, for that whole altitude range, Mm -hmm. what would be the result of one 
degree rise in temperature in terms of additional malaria cases without mitigation. And we did this based on the pattern of malaria cases with altitude. But this was a calculation that said, well, let's assume that temperature does create this kind of altitudinal shift, what would be the consequence? So that was a potential consequence. What is important in the paper now is that we show that that shift, in fact, does occur and can occur. So let me tell you from that earlier calculation what were more or less the numbers we had. We had around 400,000 new infections per year in the territories that were previously free of malaria and of the order of 2.8 million annual infections that could occur additionally in the areas where you already had malaria. Mm. What are the implications for this? Is this another argument for climate change mitigation, or do other actions need to take place to specifically address the threat of an, an increased malaria burden under climate change? Climate change mitigation is clearly important, and it's something that our study emphasizes. Now, it is important to say, unfortunately, because highlands have still much lower transmission intensity than the more endemic lower regions, Mm -hmm. that these are places where intervention and elimination, possibly, can succeed. So, in a sense, in a warmer world, right, with an increased malaria risk, it becomes particularly important to sustain the control efforts and not abandon this prematurely. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that the control efforts would actually be more successful at the higher altitudes. It's a little easier to take care of the problem there. Yes, I mean, this is, and in fact, this is known because this, by definition, because we are at the edge of the distribution of the disease, these are low transmission regions. They exhibit epidemics because they are low transmission regions, so you can have worse seasons with worse outbreaks, etc. So they are very dynamic regions, but transmission tends to be lower than at lower elevations where you have many more cases, many more mosquito bites, many more mosquitoes. So this is the good part. So here control can be effective, more effective. And it is with an increased risk, then it's even more important to sustain the control efforts. And as long as elimination is not achieved, basically protect these populations which remain more vulnerable due to global warming. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something else than control and mitigation. I think that increasing surveillance and monitoring, including in areas that may have been free of disease before, is very important. In fact, surveillance in some of these regions can be limited because of low transmission and this very dynamic epidemic behavior. But we can expect that if control is relaxed, there could be epidemics and surprising epidemics. So it is, as I say, important to sustain the efforts. And the good message is that, of course, in these regions, such efforts in the long term can be successful. Okay. Well, Mercedes Pasquale, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. Mercedes Pasquale and colleagues write about the relationship between climate, altitude, and malaria in this week's issue. Finally today, David Grimm, editor for our daily news site, is here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on super genes. The uncanny resemblance between a harmless snake and a poisonous one Mimicry has been known about for over a century, and it seems straightforward. 
take advantage of another animal's scary plumage or coloration, and you reap the reward of a long life. But this leaves open the big question of mechanism. How exactly can genes be selected to adapt in such a complicated way? So, Dave, what's a good example of this? Well, so one of the very classic examples, one of the first examples of mimicry that was ever found in nature was found in the late 19th century, and it involved butterflies, harmless butterflies looking like toxic ones to avoid being eaten by birds. One of the interesting things that was found was with a butterfly known as the common Mormon swallowtail. And what was interesting about this species was that it was just the females that mimicked a poisonous butterfly species. And even then, it was just some of the females that did it. And so for 150 years, scientists have really been asking themselves this question of, What's the genetic mechanism for this mimicry? So about these butterflies, how close are the females that are mimics to the rest of the butterflies? They actually don't look that similar, especially when it comes to their wings. Most of the butterflies of the species have black wings that just have a faint yellow band on the lower hind wing. But these female mimics that are mimicking a species known as the common rose butterfly, they have white shading on their upper forewings. They have reddish, orange, and white tints on their hind wing. They also have a bit of a tail at the bottom of their wing. And you can see a picture of this on the site, just a comparison of these two species. So they really do look a lot different than their counterparts. So that's quite a lot of traits to consider here. How did the researchers narrow down what genes to look at? Well, and they thought there was a lot of genes. You imagine that so many different traits would have a lot of different genes. But when the researchers started probing the genetics of this butterfly, they found that actually it all seems to come down to a single gene, which they call a supergene. And what these genes are basically is they're, they're segments of DNA that sit side by side on a chromosome and they're inherited as a single unit. And why that's important is because that helps explain one of the other mysteries scientists have wondered about 450 years is why you only have mimics and non-mimics and you have nothing in between. So you don't have some female butterflies that maybe have some of the coloration of the mimics and some of the coloration of the non-mimics. You either are a mimic or you're not. And this supergene helps explain how all of these traits that are involved in mimicry are basically inherited as a single unit. You can't really break them up. And because of that, you don't, you don't really have these intermediate mimics. What did they find when they took a close look at the genetics? When they looked, what they found was indeed they found this supergene. And what was really interesting was they found that this gene was oriented in the opposite direction of most other genes on the chromosome. Why that's interesting is because genes during reproduction could actually swap pieces of themselves with other genes on the chromosome. But that doesn't happen with this gene because of its orientation. And because of that, it explains this all or none effect that you see with a mimicry, either that females get all of these mimicry traits or they get none of them. So does this explain why only females inherit this gene? Well, it turns out this mimicry gene is known as the double sex gene. It's also present in other insects. And the reason it's called that is because it helps determine the sex of the embryo. And so researchers think that this particular gene is somehow tied to femaleness and therefore, that's why females, at least of this particular species of butterfly, are the only ones who can be mimics. We're talking about a specific example in this butterfly. Is this likely behind other types of mimicry? Well, scientists don't really know how many of these supergenes are out there. But if they're fairly prevalent, they could explain mimicry not just in other butterfly species, but in other insect species as well. Next up, we have a story on how a low-carb diet may not be the way to go. 
Two recent reports seem to both make the claim that high carbs may be life-extending when combined with low protein, a pretty controversial claim in the face of the low-carb craze that's been sweeping the nation. What has been the evidence so far, Dave, that low-carb is good for you? Well, Sarah, low-carb diets, which typically involve a lot of protein, have been shown in the past to improve what are called metabolic profiles, such as lowering blood pressure and glucose levels. And some people have taken away from that that these types of diets make you live longer and live healthier. But there's also been some conflicting evidence. For example, lots of protein has also been linked to heart disease, which is not going to make you live longer or healthier. It's been a bit confusing out there in terms of what exactly you need to change about your diet to live a healthier lifestyle. So what do these new studies say? Let's talk about the mouse study first. What did they eat and how did it turn out for them? Well, you know, one of the really complicated things about these studies, as you can imagine, Sarah, is there's just so many variables in our diet. How do you control for all those variables? And that's where these mice came in. The researchers took more than 850 mice and they put them on 25 different diets. So different mice got different diets. Some of them were very high protein slash low carb. Some were high carb, low protein. And what they found was the mice whose diets included 5 to 15 percent protein and 40 to 60 percent carbohydrates lived the longest, up to 150 weeks compared to just 100 weeks for those on very high protein diet where their diets were as much as 50 percent protein. Okay. And so then the second study looked at this question in people using retrospective data. What did they see? Right. So what this study looked at was more than 6,000 adults who were over 50 years old. And these were sort of surveys where the people self-reported what their diets were. And what the researchers found with this was that those that were under 65 years old who self-reported diets that the researchers classified as high protein were a much higher risk of illness and death than a group who took only 10% or fewer of their calories from protein. The high-protein eaters were also more than four times as likely to die from cancer than the low-protein eaters. So these two studies seem to make the claim that you can be skinny and short-lived or overweight and long-lived. Is that what they're saying? (laughs) Kind of. I mean, what were the interesting things that they saw with the mice was that mice that ate lots of proteins were actually skinnier than those that ate lower percentage protein diet, which is why I think a lot of people have thought the high-protein diet is better for you because if you're skinnier, the idea is that if you're skinnier, you must be healthier. But that's not what the researchers are seeing. In fact, the people and the mice that tend to be a little bit plumper actually live longer than people that are very thin. So we're seeing two publications here that say the same thing. But what about all the people in the comments section of this article and on (laughs) Facebook saying diet advice changes all the time? When are we going to get straight answers about nutrition? What's so hard about studying these things? Well, you know, again, it gets back to the fact that there's just so many different variables here. I mean, it's not just high protein or high carbs. It's the lifestyles of these people. Otherwise, it's exercise, it's drinking habits. With the mice in the study, all these mice were from a single strain, which means they're all very genetically similar to each other. So that can make a difference in the results the researchers are seeing. This is just, diet is just such an extraordinarily complex thing that it's really hard to get simple answers. And plus, we're talking about lifespan, which means that you have to kind of count up what happens during your life in order to figure out what has an impact or not. Exactly. And there are a lot of things that happen in our lives besides what we put in our mouths. 
And how does calorie restriction fit into this? Well, a common theme in a lot of lifespan studies has been that somehow reducing calories increases lifespan. At least this has been seen in some non-human organisms. What these studies suggest is it's possible that calorie restriction may actually be protein restriction. And it's not just necessarily cutting calories that makes us live longer. It's by cutting calories, we're actually cutting protein. Okay, Dave. So what's the next study on the horizon that's going to clarify everything? Well, (laughs) I don't know if we're going to ever clarify everything, or at least not anytime soon. But the scientists who conducted the mouse study are planning a low-protein, high-carb diet that will go head-to-head with a restricted calorie diet to see which one of those makes the mice live the longest. Won't solve the mystery, but may get us a little closer to the answer. Finally, we have a story on historic bowel movements. You're an archaeologist, and you found a gold mine, a sealed chamber dating back to medieval times, undisturbed for 700 years. Upon close examination, you realize the barrels within hold something more precious than gold, fossilized feces. So, Dave... What can we learn from this petrified poop? (laughs) Quite a lot, it turns out, Sarah. When the researchers drilled into this fossilized feces, they took some very high-resolution microscopy images. What they found, in addition to the poop, was these virus-like structures. And it turns out these structures are called bacteriophages. And what they are are actually viruses that infect bacteria. Here's why that's important. Our guts are filled with bacteria, bacteria that may be responsible for some very important things like our weight, our susceptibility to disease, even things like allergies, seem to be controlled by our gut bacteria. And scientists now have this snapshot back in time of how these bacteria may have evolved over time. And so when they looked at the phage, they were able to see something that told us more about the past bacteria that we had? That's right, because these phages were actually carrying genes for antibiotic resistance. And these phages don't just infect bacteria. They actually help transfer genes from bacteria to bacteria. And why that's cool is because it's thought, and this study sort of supports this idea, that over time, these phages may have actually transported some very important genes into the bacteria in our guts, genes that help these bacteria potentially fight off other bacteria. And what supports this is that the fact that the, the, this ancient stool actually had more antibiotic resistance genes than modern stool specimens do. And one thing that suggests is that perhaps the bacteria in our guts needed a lot more of this antibiotic resistance because they use these antibiotics to fight off foreign microbes. And you would imagine a few hundred years ago when conditions were a lot less sanitary than they are now, the bacteria in our gut are fighting off a lot more invaders than they might be fighting off today. So the phage were also carrying metabolic genes. Why would they be carrying those? Well, again, it gets back to this idea that these bacteria in our guts play a lot of very important roles. They help us break down food, for example. They temper inflammation. And because of that, they're going to need these genes that help them do that. And these phages may have actually been the vehicle for how they got some of these genes in the first place. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about where Bulgaria's famous flying bears came from. Also a story about what happens when you try to combine a bicycle with a tricycle. 
for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got an analysis of President Obama's newly released science budget and who the winners and the losers are. Also a story about a deadly strain of avian flu that has penetrated a biosecurity lab in Seoul, South Korea. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.